And let's go to God's Word by turning it in our Bibles to John chapter 14, John chapter 14, uh, verse 18. You can find that at page 1046, 1046 of your pew Bibles, of your pew Bibles. John chapter 14, verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and then obeys, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you any much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. O Father in heaven, Remind us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God would be fully equipped for every good work. So have our hearts by your Spirit grown of your Word that we might grow in our, our understanding of you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. The word for word, this is probably the most weighty portion of the word of God, and we have it open to us this morning. We cannot examine every word or every phrase. There's simply too much to know. 
too much to study, but I believe that we can see the whole and that by the Spirit we will be ministered to. Jesus is clearly revealing to his friends, the disciples, that he is going to the Father. But before he goes, he's instructing them. They're still in the upper room. Soon they'll be on their way past the upper room, down the Kidron, down to the Kidron River, and across to the Garden of Gethsemane. But first, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of the glorious love of God. And I do believe that this is being communicated here from Jesus to his anxious and troubled disciples. He says right from the beginning of our text this morning is, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. There is obviously an anxiety because Jesus says, I am going to leave. And he's already said at the beginning of this chapter, do not be afraid. Trust in God, trust also in me. But what is Jesus saying in this beginning paragraph from verses 18 through 21? I believe that he's speaking about the glorious love of God in the resurrection. I do believe there is another meaning as well. John tends to have double meanings in his text, but I do believe the first part is that he is revealing to his men, to these men that he has ministered with and to and loved deeply of the glorious love of God in his resurrection. I say this because when you look at verse 19 at the end, he says, because I live, you also will live. We know that his going is to go to the cross. That's exactly where he's going. He's going to the place of execution. But he clearly says to the men, because I live, you also will live. I do believe that is an allusion to the resurrection. Jesus previously taught at the funeral of, of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this is what he said to Martha? Jesus had already taught about himself being the resurrection and the life. And if we believe in him, even though we die, yet we will live. And we see here an illusion, at least in part, of that reality. And of course, Jesus says in verse 20, on that day. Now, what day is he speaking? And he says, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And at this point, do they understand that? They don't, right? There's, there's confusion. There's ignorance about who Jesus is. Yet we know at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that wonderful man named Thomas, we know him as Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas. I wonder if he goes by that in heaven still. Ah, it's Doubting Thomas again. I doubt it very much because Thomas makes one of the greatest proclamations of the deity of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture when he says, my Lord and my God, in John chapter 20, verse 28. As the Lord reveals himself in the resurrection, he clearly 
clears up for his disciples, at least in part, who he is. That he's far more than a worldly messianic ruler and king who will destroy the Romans. No, but he is very God. And that's why I do believe it's pointing to the resurrection. And it is about the glorious of love of God in the resurrection, isn't it? Because I live, you will live. Because I rise from the tomb, you too will live. And not only live this new life, but you too will live forever with the hope of the resurrection. And in fact, what we know about the resurrection, that proclamation of Jesus' victory over sin and death, is that it leads us to the outpouring at Pentecost of the Holy Spirit. Where the revelation of God to them would be filled out, made bigger than they understood at that moment. And what a wondrous promise we have here, not only of the resurrection, but I do believe of the sending of the Holy Spirit by the Father, which Jesus clearly instructs previously. And here as well in verse 26. But the glorious love of God in the sending of the Spirit is already spoken in the context, isn't it? In John chapter 14, verse 16, if you have your Bibles open, you will see that. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, and we talked about that last week, another strengthener. Another strengthener to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. They had seen the work, hadn't they, of the spirit in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said the spirit is with you. Where had they seen the Spirit most clearly manifest? In Jesus himself. When Jesus came out of the wilderness, tempted by the evil one those 40 days, he went out in the power of the Holy Spirit, didn't he? Oh, we see him actually before his entry into the wilderness, that the Holy Spirit came upon him, right, in the form of a dove. But the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is a revelation of the power of the Holy Spirit with them. And that same power of the Holy Spirit with them that was in Jesus will be in them soon. And that's why he says, do not be afraid. Do not be concerned. You're going to have a greater manifestation of the Holy Spirit when he comes. Because not only will he be with you in my ministry, he will be in you. That's good comfort for these anxious souls here in our story. Because what is the glorious love of God in the sending of the Spirit? What is God saying to us when he sends the Spirit in power and reveals who Jesus Christ is. My Lord and my God, what is he doing? What is he speaking? Is he not speaking of his love for you? When you are born again, that is an act of God's glorious love. Where heaven kisses your, kisses your soul and you come to life. Because God wants to dwell in me. He wants to dwell in you. That's rich, isn't it? He doesn't simply want you to know a system of theology or doctrine. 
or be part of traditions. He wants you to know him. And he wants to tabernacle in you and abide with you and love you and envelop you into something far more great than you, the infinite God dwelling in you. And if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, the infinite God dwells in you in the power of the Spirit. That, that's supposed to animate our affections, isn't it? That's, most, that's meant to bubble up in me a greater adoration and a greater joy and a greater send me kind of Isaiah moment. Send me. And we know that the kiss of the Holy Spirit upon the soul of Peter and of James and John and the other disciples and the 120 in the upper room and 3,000 came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or 3,000 had their souls kissed by God himself. And they came from death into life and life forevermore. And of course, this glorious love of God that Jesus is speaking of here in our text is about communion, isn't it? I've been, I've been speaking about that. But let's look at those verses again, 21 and 23. He says, whoever has my commandment, commands and then, and then obeys, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And skipping down to verse 23, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make, and make our home with him. We will come to him and make our home with him. God is wanting to commune with us as people. Jesus had demonstrated that, hadn't he? Oh, in fact, hadn't God always wanted to commune with his people from the garden? What did God do in the cool of the day? In the Garden of Eden, he would walk with Adam and Eve, wouldn't he? We love that hymn where he walks and talks. That's what would happen. And then what do we see revealed in the tabernacle, in the wilderness wanderings? What is God doing again? He's, well, he's tabernacling amongst his people. He's among them. And then, of course, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is very clear from the Gospel of John, you go back to John chapter 1, verse 14, is that the Word made his dwelling or his tabernacle among us. He pitched his tent among us to commune, to have this fellowship. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, it's a wondrously rich life of communion with his, with his friends, with his enemies, in fact, with all kinds of people the Lord Jesus Christ appears to be communing. But we see this powerful portrayal of God's <clears throat> the glorious love of God in communion, where do we see it? Where do we experience it in corporate worship? It's at the table, isn't it? This communion, we actually speak of in the Reformed tradition, the presence of Christ in the bread and the wine, his presence. And how can we say that? 
because we already have communion with God, don't we, through the indwelling power of the Spirit, that we might now have eyes to see that in the broken bread and in the, in the cup, we see the sacrificial death in Jesus' broken body and shed blood. And it's through that sacrifice that we have what? Communion with God. This table proclaims that reality. And it's interesting, it's a table too. Where do we tend to gather, or we used to gather more regularly throughout the history of humanity until, until we got to the modern era and lost our marbles. We tend to be so busy, we have no time to sit together and talk and be at the table to have a meal because guess what, you gotta go somewhere, don't you? Not really, you don't really have to go anywhere, but you just think you do. But the table is a place of home, isn't it? And that's what he was on that night when he instituted the Lord's Supper. Jesus was up in the upper room at home with his men, all reclining at the table face to face with them. An intimate fellowship. This is not just a tradition when we come to this table. No, no, it's a supernatural communion with the almighty God. So we ought not to trifle when we come here. We ought not to think of this as simply a memorial. It's far more than that. And in fact, the whole of the Christian life is far more than that, isn't it? If you are indwelt with the Spirit, you have communion with God the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the torn veil of his body, we have access to God the Father and communion with him. And if we have this wondrous, rich communion, this wondrous love of God dwelling among us, this power indwelling us, guaranteeing what is still to come, how ought the glorious love of God to be revealed in you? How ought the glorious love of God to be revealed in me? What does Jesus say? He definitely doesn't say complaining. He definitely doesn't say it's all about you. He says, again and again, love, right? This idea of love. Whoever has my commands and then obeys, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And again, he says, like we read before, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And, he will, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We've already read last week, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We see that same thing coming through, this idea of love. And truly, if our soul has been kissed by the glorious love of God in the Holy Spirit, it should change us, shouldn't it? It should make us lovers of others because we have been so lavishly loved. In fact, Jesus instructs us about prayer. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors or we forgive those who sin against us. Is that not an act of love, isn't it? That's an act of love. In fact, that's most likely a, a daily reality that we need to be praying in our own hearts. To forgive. 
In fact, the greatest act of love that has ever existed in all of human history is Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross to do what? To forgive me and you. To forgive all those who are in Christ Jesus. So forgiveness is a wondrous act of love, and you can go down the list. We have the Beatitudes. We have the Ten Commandments. We can go beyond. Just keep going throughout the Scriptures, and you'll see love, 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 love being expressed. So where are you? How is love expressed in your life? How are you struggling to love others? Because obviously this isn't given to his disciples that they would be reminded to love. And if you love me, if you say you love me, you will love your brother. You will love your wife. You will love your husband if you love me. Some of us have a hard time loving our husband, don't we? Some of us have a hard time loving our wife, no matter how much we keep up appearances. I mean, we have a hard enough time loving people that we know. But that's the call of Christ. Because that's what he's given us, his love, radiating inside of us by the power of the Spirit. When I read this text, do you sense your own weakness? your own failure, your own need for repentance? I do. This is weighty. This is the weighty word of God falling on our souls. And the Lord Jesus Christ gives encouragement here to his men. He does give encouragement. In verse 26, he speaks, well, he says this. Let's read verse 25 and 26. And this I have spoken while still with you, but the counsel of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. How important this is that the Holy Spirit has come, who has applied the gospel, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ to our own lives. But what's important for us to, I think, see in this text, especially for the men in the upper room, is that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was like drinking from a fire hydrant. Now, a fire hydrant was pretty hard to drink out of if it's full bore, right? I remember in seminary, that's what they would say. Uh, this will be like drinking from a fire hydrant this, this year, this semester. Enjoy. Well, that's exactly what the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have been studying the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, and you still feel like you're an amateur after 40 years? You can raise your hands if you'd like. Oh, that's fantastic. Raise your hands. I've been doing it a long time. I still feel like an amateur. But, but here we see that Jesus is comforting his, his overwhelmed brothers. And these men are overwhelmed in the upper room. They're anxious. They're afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. And they're taking in so much, they just can't take it in. But, he, but the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, do not worry. My strengthener, my counselor, the helper will come to you and he'll remind you of everything I did and everything I commanded so that you might be winsome witnesses in the world. 
That you will be spirit-powered witnesses in the world, even in the, the reality of your own fleshliness, in the reality of your own infirmities. Like, look at the apostle Peter. Even he wouldn't go to the Gentiles, would he, until he had a vision. And then he goes to Cornelius' house, and he realizes God shows no favoritism. We're going, Peter, shouldn't you have known that before? Hello? It seems to be even taught in the Old Testament, but it just shows you that God can use the dullest person. If he can use me, he can use you. Because we're not powered simply by the flesh, we're powered by the Spirit. And that's the wondrous comfort here. Oh, Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. Oh, Holy Spirit, help me to see who I really am, to see my weaknesses. In order that I would be a faithful witness, a spirit-powered witness, and it's very clear as he's speaking to his men, Peter is reflecting many years later when he writes his letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origins in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried by, along by the Holy Spirit. It appears that Jesus taught Peter well in that upper room and that the Holy Spirit had reminded him of this very moment. Peter, it's not you. The Holy Spirit is who used these men to proclaim God's word to the nations. And that truth is still Going forth, although they are dead, these men still speak, but not by their own, but by the Spirit. Even here on the other side of the world. So, brothers and sisters, take heart. Take heart in us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, leaving off his men, says these beautiful words. Have you ever meditated on these words? In verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Now these young men in the upper room would have heard the word shalom very often. It was a greeting, a common greeting for strangers or for others in everyday life. And in fact, when you go to the ironic blessing in Numbers, you'll hear the Lord bless you and keep you, right? The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you his peace. And in the evening service, I say, shalom, shalom. But of course, the word shalom in the original context is one of deep covenant relationship with his people. Again, that coming back to that intimacy we see in the previous part of the text. But he says, I give my peace to you. It's to you that I give it. And what kind of peace does he give? He says, not like the world gives. Isn't that interesting? We know that many people espouse peace. We hear, we've heard politicians espouse peace. We've, see, we've heard all kinds of peace accords that should happen in in Israel, and how many have happened? Is there peace in Israel? 
After all the peace accords, there's none. There is no peace. The world gives a temporal peace, but what kind of peace is Jesus speaking of? An everlasting peace. A peace that would be purchased in his own blood on the cross. A peace peace that would reconcile us with God the Father. A peace that would delight our hearts as we sing every Sunday again and again. Peace that would never end. And the saints would sing it for all eternity. An everlasting peace. Our world promises all kinds of peace. But it cannot deliver eternal peace, can it? It cannot fill the God-shaped hole in you. Only God can do that. And only his son will do. Ruling and reigning in your heart. The lamb that was just slain, but is alive forevermore. Ruling and reigning in your heart. That's peace. Your other priorities you have, they're not peace. Those priorities that push Christ out in your life, and they're so big because you think you'll be happy if you get these things, they're not bringing peace. They'll never bring peace. Only Christ. That's what the gospel says, isn't it? Only Christ brings everlasting peace. And he's saying to his men, all their faces at the table, my peace I give to you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to bear my life on the cross for you. And it's not just to the men that were at that table. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, looks everyone in the face. For those who believe, my peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Now clearly as these men are thinking about what Jesus is saying and taking it in, and of course like drinking from a fire hydrant, there's this painful reality in the room. But there's this also joyous homecoming that Jesus is speaking of. Did you notice that little piece? It it seems odd. It seems out of place. In verse 28, you heard me say, I am going away and I'm coming back to you again. I believe at this point, he's saying, I'm coming back to you, not only in my resurrection appearance, which will only last for 40 days, but I'm coming back to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says this, if you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. If you loved me, this is a very affectionate moment. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to my Father. Why does this delight Jesus' heart so much? Had he not existed with the Father for all eternity? Had he not delighted in his Father? Not without this veil of flesh that was mortal, that would die. He had always done that. He said, I'm going back going back to him who I've always been united to. You should delight in that. But we should also delight in that because if he goes, he with the Father would send the Spirit. And if he goes, he would intercede for us, the saints, would he not? He would always intercede for us. 
No matter the seasons of our lives, there he would be with the nail-scarred hands interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father with his glory on display, lighting up heaven with all the saints rejoicing. Yes, there's that phrase, right? The Father is greater than I. It's not one in essence. It's one in position. He is the sent one who speaks the word of God. That's what it's speaking of. He is living under the Father's authority as the one sent and the one who speaks the Father's word, but not one in essence. He too is fully God, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father. And Jesus switches at the end, and we'll end here. Those last verses, I will not speak with you any long, much longer. It's like all of a sudden a shoe drops. Something changes in the room. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now. Let us leave. The Lord Jesus Christ is about ready to get up from the table. He's about ready to leave the upper room. And he speaks of the prince of the world. Now, he spoke before previously in John, in, in previously in the text, in John chapter 12 verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he's getting up from this table. And where is he headed? He's headed to Gethsemane, where he will be, feel the power of sin upon him. And he's going to Golgotha. And he's saying to his men, Yes, the prince of the world is coming, and he will come in the figure of Judas. Judas is indwelt by the Satan himself, the traitor, the betrayer. And Jesus is saying, that man, that, that demon has no power over me. That fallen angel has no power over me. But he willfully walks into that lion's mouth. That is his purpose. He has come for this very moment to be bruised by the serpent, but to crush his head. So the cosmic collision has now come. The cosmic conflict with the forces of evil will happen from Gethsemane to Golgotha. And no compulsion by anything in the world, by the evil one, is setting him forward. He goes in the power of the Spirit, doing the will of God. He freely goes to the gallows. He's always in control in the gospel. Every step, Jesus is in control. His mission is always central. The, that for which God sent him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What propels him? What propels Jesus to go to the gallows? Love, isn't it? It is love that propels Jesus to the cross. The love that must be evident in all of us. 
In fact, we see this very clearly, that Jesus says, I love the Father. I love the Father's commands. The world must know of my love for the Father. You can hear here, he's already sending out the mission call. I want everyone to know about my love for the Father and the Father's love for them because that's why he sent me, to love you, to love the nations, to love those, all that he's calling to himself when his wrath is poured out on me at Golgotha. And so Jesus says, come now, let us leave. Let us go into victory. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry, the weightiness of your word. And oh, Heavenly Father, would it encourage us this glorious love that you have for us, your people, this glorious love that is expressed in your communion to us, that we would be those who ex express love in all of life for your glory. And may the wondrous cross of Christ that expresses the glory most gloriously to the nations be on our lips and lived in our lives all the way till our eyes close in death. May the cross be ever before us. Amen.